0: Loving God, we do pray that as we sit with your word and hear it as a living word that continues to speak into our world and its many and various experiences, may we discern not only your presence, but how you are at work, the power of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the message and the working of your Holy Spirit. Lord, as we recognise that you call us into partnership, into that, teach us and shape us, enable us to be people on mission. In Jesus' name. Amen. I suspect Fiona would agree that... (laughs) I haven't told Fiona I was going to mention this... Um, that I'm not at my best when I return from a holiday. I'm not. I don't know about you, but if you've had a really good holiday, whether it's been a weekend or whether it's been a, a trip away somewhere else, and it's just been wonderful, when you come back down to earth, I'm not at my best. I take a little bit of motivating, and I come in a little bit get a little bit scratchy when I come back from a holiday. And I'm sure that's an experience that we've all known right from childhood on. You know, children have a big day in mind, a big celebration, a big moment that they anticipate. And then it comes, and then it goes. Then you're left with a reality of life, all that comes. Something of that experience for me comes after Easter um, after Easter, when I'm, we have celebrated, and I've actually have to say, I've really enjoyed um, celebrating and, and observing Easter with the St. Matthew's family. Um, from the Thursday night to Friday morning to Easter day, uh, with some visitors coming in and recognizing others who've had um, trips and journeys elsewhere as well. All that busyness has, has always been part of the Easter experience. I've really enjoyed that process. Then I come to the week after Easter. And as I mentioned last week, I was tired. So, you know, in my depleted state of minimal energy, I decided to take on a gardening project. More about that a bit later. Um, but that's the reality. But it's more than just the, uh, uh, the physical tired. There's a sense in which we've been up on a mountaintop viewing the, the profound and deep mysteries that are, we just glimpse and work with. And then we come back to the realities of day-to-day life. So as our sermon series has been exploring God's mission plan for all creation, especially through the the, uh, the phrase shalom in the sanctuary of God and reminding you that this word shalom, um, usually translated peace, it's probably the closest we can get in English, but is so much richer than that. It's the notion of fullness and of flourishing, of healing, of restoration, of nurture, of being restored, all those things bundled together is that notion of shalom. Raises the question, what does shalom look like after Easter? And I want to introduce a phrase that uh, some of you may have heard, but it's a one that's much used by interpreters of the New Testament. Um, when we look at what, what happens after Easter, because the New Testament was written after Easter, Easter, at least it was written after the events and the various oral traditions that occurred, and people talked about what has just happened, what has changed in the world, what has changed in our faith and our hope, is summarised by this phrase, the now and the not yet. It means that we are now in a new space. It talks about things have changed, the kingdom has broken in through the events of Easter, through the, uh, the entry of Jesus the King into Jerusalem through his, uh, the events of that, that uh, amazing week culminating in the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. There is a new world that has emerged, that is now named as a now. But there's also a lot that is not yet, in the sense that we are just glimpsing, we're having a foretaste, an appetizer of what is yet to be the fullness is still to come. So that phrase, now and not yet, is used to describe much of what we uh, hear and observe in the New Testament as well. At one end of that process, at the not end of that process, the not yet, sorry, is the phrase, the day, the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. And I took this graphic off from the internet, but if I was to do it myself, I'd actually have a capital D for that final phrase, Uh, for the day of Christ, not just any day, a decisive day. Now the language of the day of Christ, the day of the Lord, would have been very familiar to those who know their Old Testaments because initially the phrase was used for a day of victory in battle when the enemies of Israel gathered, armies were on the, the doorstep, cities were besieged. And people reached out to God to say, deliver us, save us from our enemies, whether it's the Egyptians or um, the others who would come and, and to oppress them. The day of the Lord was the day in which God would act decisively to defeat the oppressors, defeat the enemies. So it became known as a decisive day to look forward to and to cry out for. Now the day was a day that is a a moment of salvation. It wasn't a battle as such because there was no arguing. God was just decisive against those who were enemies of God's purposes, who were rebelling and pushing back. So the day is a day of salvation for the faithful. And at the same moment, the other side of the coin, if you like, it's a day of judgment for those who are opposed to God, the enemies of God, those who would work evil and darkness and abuse and conflict and violence over against God's purposes for shalom. So when the day of the Lord is used in the prophets, they take it from being a battlefield day of victory and the prophets put it against a much bigger background of a cosmic battle between the powers of evil and darkness over against the armies of God. So the prophets talk about the day of the Lord as a future day in which a, day, a time of reckoning and salvation will be brought and those who have been uh, wreaking havoc will be called to account. When we actually look at it in those terms and as we see too awfully the uh, what that can look like in the the uh, the the gore and the awful, awful nature of what we are observing of a, a one power of Putin and armies of Russia invading and creating havoc, part of us cry out, we're saying, will they be held to account? Is it a question of who's got the biggest army can get away with what do they like? And a lot of the Psalms reflect, how long, oh Lord, will they get away with it? These unrighteous, evil people who are trying to take our lives and are causing such harm. That's a cry we know all too well. The prophets would say the day is coming when they will be dealt with and called to an account and the fullness of God's kingdom will be introduced. Yet we're not there yet. It's now but not yet in that space as well. By the time we get to the New Testament that day of the Lord, this decisive moment, is given a focus as the day of Christ, the day of Jesus and his return. And when Christ's return on that day, the fullness of the kingdom will be experienced and all those who have turned their back on God and rebelled against God and those who would work uh, evil and injustice and corruption and power, Will be called to account. that makes some sense in terms of the expectation and why this phrase is so significant? So Paul prays that the Philippian church, and I've got to remember that Paul isn't writing out of a comfort zone. He is in prison. He's in chains. Um, Paul actually says, that's okay because the guards aren't allowed to run away from me, so I'll preach the gospel to them. And some of them are coming to faith. But Paul was in chains and he was about to face a trial before Caesar, the one who claimed to be the most powerful lord in the world, who promoted himself as the, the one who brings peace through the army of Rome. So this is very real for Paul and he's writing to a Philippian church and a community where that culture is very strong within Philippi. It's actually a military uh, town. So Paul talks about that you can discern that. And Paul goes on to say, and we can be confident that this will occur because God does not abandon a job halfway through. God will complete what he has started. So this talk that we've been discussing about Shalom and the sanctuary of God is an ongoing project that will come to its fullness and its completion. We're closer to it now, but we're not there yet. So Paul talks about that we may be confident that the one who began the good work in you, and it's actually in the plural, in yous, not just a personal thing, but in, in the community of the church, will carry it on to completion until the day, the day of Christ. Jesus. So he encourages them with that. And it's helpful for us in our own life and experience to have those moments when we think, um, I'm not sure I've got the strength to carry on. I'm drifting. I'm realising that I'm not in the space that I was when I was in the mountaintop experience. I'm immersed in those realities of every day and it's bearing in on me. And Paul would say, be confident that God is not going to abandon the work he started in you. It can be used in a lovely phrase that actually can sound trivial, but it's actually very real. We're God's work building site. We are a work in progress. And things that we may have done in the past and have stuffed up and have messed up, God is moving on and enabling us to, to grow stronger in that space as well. God will complete the work that he has started in each of us and in us as a community and through his church. So I said that uh, in the enthusiasm post-Easter, I said, right, the time has come. Uh, now is the time to tackle the promised garden, the front of the rectory. I, in a moment of, I don't know, follow you otherwise, uh, will be moved in, said to Neil Thompson, Don't worry about watering it, Neil, because that's not really a lawn, it's just scrappy grass, it's just annoying, it just attracts debris. I'll dig it up and put a garden in. Turns out it's actually pretty hard digging, because you go down about six inches and it is like cement, it is rock hard. But anyway, I persevered into the night, Fiona will tell you, um, and have planted some, uh, some native grasses. So the vision, the hope is that these little uh, plants at this, at this stage will grow. And if I, you know, I'm not quite as confident I am about that as I am about the Lord's return and about the working of God completing the good work in us. But I'm hopeful something of that spirit might translate itself into the front garden. Uh, so the, the hope is that these native grasses, with some care and attention and uh, a certain attrition rate, no doubt, will begin to grow and uh, a new uh, garden will emerge in time. This is very much in the not-yet space, but patience and work to be done as well. But the thing is that we need to ha- to hope that what has started in us, like those little plants will be nurtured and in God's grace can grow and flourish. And we can grow into the people that God is calling us to be, enabling us to be, and to be the church that God is calling us to be and enabling us to be. So the phrase that is used for that is that Paul gives thanks for the Philippian church, a small church up in Macedonia, for their partnership in the gospel. Now, some of you who uh, recall my former life here at St. Matthew's would know I was fond of a particular word called koinonia, or koinonia. It's the word for partnership, for fellowship, for participation. Another wonderful word. And God is calling us to be partners in his mission work. And when we uh, hear that call in whatever way we can respond to it in our own way, we find ourselves in the company of other partners. We are partners in the gospel, Paul says, from the first day until now. So the now in the not yet stage is a time of activity, a time where there is work to be done, there is mission to be fulfilled. So Paul celebrates that and thanks God for gathering together the people, the partners in gospel ministry um, at that stage. If that is to be, um, to have any, not just credibility, but if it's to be a reality, there are two key principles. We find them time and again in Paul's language, and he talks about righteousness and about justice. And there's nothing new in this. From early days in the Bible, from the book of Deuteronomy through to the, uh, the Prophets, the through the Psalms, you see these two paired side by side: righteousness and justice. Both are needed if shalom is to be experienced. They're both vital foundations for shalom. And it can sound more obvious. You know, righteousness is to, to do the right thing, to live rightly, to relate to. Rightly to God and to relate rightly to our family and to our neighbours and to our wider community. To make right choices in that space. That's all about the work of righteousness. And ultimately that righteousness is God's righteousness. There is none as righteous as God. But that is what it is to be like God. To begin to, uh, to see the world and approach life as God was calling us to. Righteousness is a foundation that we cannot do without. And it is demonstrated in the grace of God. How do we relate rightly? How do we make right choices, live rightly? It is when we live in grace. Justice is also paired, and it's actually not the same as righteousness. Justice is actually a calling to account. It is accepting responsibility. It is recognizing that we are accountable for the choices that we make. So in a court of law, I imagine that if uh, someone who's been offended brings someone and says that they need to be called to account for what they have done. It's caused injury. It's caused harm. It is wrong. And it's the role of your court to, to bring justice. You imagine a a judge then saying, well, yeah, that's all true, but, you know, let's just live in love. Let's just forget about it and move on. How do you think the person who's been wronged feels? I can hear their cry now. That's not right. That's not fair. That is not justice. Justice demands there be an accountability, and we can't just say, oh, I'll be forgiven, it's okay, because it's not Okay. So, the grace that we talk about in righteousness is not a cheap grace. It's a grace that accepts the responsibility. And if we have wronged others, we should do our best to make amends, to restore where we are able to. Where we have said the wrong thing, we should actually apologize truly and acknowledge it and to name it, not try to evade it. These two together are vital. For a world of shalom, we need the grace, but we also need justice and accountability and order. Otherwise, anarchy would rule and people who have the bigger army will get away with it and saying that's okay because I'm the strongest. No, the knowledge of good and evil is justice. That God says we cannot negotiate with God. So this is part of the work that we are called to commit ourselves to, to be people who are committed to living rightly, relating rightly, and to naming what is important for justice in that space. So Paul winds this together and he says, and this is my prayer for the Philippian church, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight To the glory and praise of God. Now I love the phrase "more and more and abounding," because it says that we, there's the best is still yet to come. There's no complacency to say, "Well, you know, this is the best we can hope for; it's all downhill from here." No, it's not in the Christian life. There's a book I uh, read a number of years ago, and I'm trying to remember the name of the author, but the, the name of the title is actually quite simple. It just simply says "more." Great title. It says, why do Christians set us settle for less? Why do we settle for being impoverished of um, a state of, of spiritual poverty? Just a little t- you know, touch here and there. He says, no, the, we are promised spiritually more and more that the love of God, the grace of God, the, the generosity of God, the peace of God, knows no limit, and we should seek and crave more that we might be better bearers of grace because as we receive, so we enter into that world of passing on, becoming instruments of God's grace to others. So where are we after Easter? We recognise that we are partners in mission. We recognise that God is calling us to have our part to play in this work of Shalom. We are encouraged that the work that God has started in us and through us, we will see it through to completion. And we seek to encourage one another to abound more and more in the knowledge and the depth of insight to the glory and praise of God. Amen. And a postscript I just realised I was going to conclude on. <laughs> this is the postscript, P.S. Uh, the phrase that Paul uses here is the fruit of that righteousness. And it's actually the phrase that was used in our first Bible reading, Isaiah 32. Talk it. What does the world look like when this shalom is growing and abounding and flourishing? Uh, the phrase is used, it's righteousness that shows fruit. And Paul used to use that phrase in uh, this passage in Philippians. He says, this righteousness is designed to bear fruit. And hence, thou, uh, that fruit will be shalom. It will be that flourishing. It will be that peace. So I uh, just use that phrase to summarize where, in effect, what Paul's prayer is landing. The fruit of that righteousness, the righteousness of God that we experience in Christ, will be peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever.